You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 5:21 to 26. It says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to him within the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. If I didn't get a chance to say hi to you on the front end, um, my name is Josh, the pastor here on behalf of the staff and um, leadership of Praxis. Very glad to have you this morning. Uh, first time guests and visitors, um, great to have you join us. If you haven't already, go ahead and grab your Bible. Um, we are a church where you need your Bible. Um, if you didn't come in with one, um, turn it on. If you've got one on your phone, we've got some on a barrel by the door. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. If you need one for this morning, feel free to use one. We're in Matthew 5. Um, for the parents in the room, just a quick announcement before we get going. If you haven't noticed, we've been growing very rapidly. Um, so has our kids' ministry. That place has been filling up. I think our record is 36 back there. And if you've been back there, you know that's, that's a miracle. Um, so we are going to begin on February 20th. We are moving to kids' church in both gatherings, which I know some of you are like, thank goodness. I had my kids on my own this past weekend. Trying to get them out the door for nine was tough. Um, I know lots of you, that works better. So now we have some options, and hopefully that just serves you better as a community with that. Um, we still do. We're looking for some more kids' volunteers um, don't want don't to be leaning on our present volunteers at double capacity or anything like that. So if you're here, if you have kids in the gathering, if you'd consider like once a month going and being uh, serving in kids and with the two gatherings, I mean, you could have one parent come in at nine and leave your, and the other parent come at 11, leave the kids in there for the 11 and come worship together. There's options of how this can work um, but we need a few more people who would be willing to step up into kids, that said, and um, look forward to hopefully being able to have more of you out all the time. Um, if you've been with us, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount, um, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. This is kind of the largest, um, most condensed sermon Jesus ever gave that we have recorded. Um, in the past month, we've worked through the first 20 verses so far seen a number of different things. First, we've seen Jesus talking about how he came to bring the kingdom of heaven. That was primarily what he came to do. That's not something that's going to happen one day when we die. That's something that's actually begun now. The kingdom of heaven has begun. It's begun in us. Came to begin the kingdom of heaven in us. And the Beatitudes we walked through, what this looks like to live out um, 
our lives as citizens of the kingdom of heaven rather than citizens of the kingdom of earth. From there, Jesus went on to talk about what this mission is, and we've, we've talked about this. We've said the kingdom of heaven has begun in us, and it's meant to flow out of us. And so um, the third week of this series, we t- we'd be examined what does it look like to live this out as the salt and light in the world, um, as, as the preservative agent, as the light that will bring truth. Um, what does it look like to, to be Jesus' missionary people um, citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Last week, if you were with us, um, Colin unpacked chapter 17, or pardon me, verse 17 to 20, talked about how Jesus' disciples um, interact with the law. We kind of cracked open a section that we're going to be working through for a while. He, if, if you were here, he talked about how Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Verse 19, Jesus actually warns us. He says, um, whoever relaxes the least of one of the commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. There's a warning. I didn't come to do away with the law. In fact, he goes on in verse 20 to say, if our righteousness doesn't exceed that of the Pharisees, we're in trouble. We won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. We're going to lean into that statement for the next six weeks. Because what Jesus begins to do now is, is, is he goes into the law And he says, here's what it looks like for your righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees. And if if you read the Bible at all, you know the Pharisees were pretty good at keeping the law. So this is a a daunting statement. We're going to lean into what this means and with six examples that Jesus uses to illustrate it. This morning, we're going to look specifically at the topic of murder, the the, the command not to murder in the law, and and Jesus' unpacking of anger and condemnation of anger as well. We're going to look at four things if you're a note taker, and we're going to look at the attitudes that Jesus addresses, the problem Jesus exposes, the solution he provides, and the response the gospel requires. I'm going to open us in a word of prayer. Jesus, we thank you for, the, for your word. Thank you for coming and saving us, beginning a kingdom in us, and, and then leaving this instruction for us and what it means to be um, heavenly citizens, the purchased, redeemed of the Lamb, what it looks like to live our lives out here. Um, as we dig into the word that you've preserved for us, that you've spoke through holy men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, these words of yours that have been preserved for 2,000 years, would you, Holy Spirit, come ignite the words of Christ, make them come alive in us, Help us to understand better what it means to be your followers, your apprentices here. We pray, um, I pray specifically just for the empowerment to do what I can't do on my own, which is make these words come alive. We need you, Holy Spirit, so we ask you to come inhabit the teaching, and we pray that in the name of Christ, amen. So um, before we dig in, I want to set this section up just a little bit because we're at the front end of what is going to be six weeks digging through six different examples. Um, In the remainder of chapter 5, where we will be for the next six weeks, we're going to find Jesus presenting what has come to be referred to as the antitheses. I think I'm saying that right. The antitheses. Um, Six examples that Jesus uses to to kind of contrast the, the requirements of the Mosaic Law with the commands of the gospel. So the six antitheses, 
Um, there's six comparisons he makes between the Mosaic Law and the Law of the Gospel. Each begins with Jesus saying, it was said, and concludes with him saying, but I say to you. So it was said, and he, and he, he kind of he presents a different law, then he kind of turns the dial up, intensifies it by saying, but I say to you. And this is a bold move. If you look at it, um, it's a really bold move because Jesus is saying, hey, Moses said this to you, but I say this to you. The, to the Jewish minds at the time, uh, this was outrageous. It made them angry. This is part of why they killed him. He's, he, he does something really bold here. So he, Moses came down the mountain at Sinai and relayed the commands of God. Jesus says, hey, I'm going to give you commands, but they're not, they've been relayed to me. I'm the one giving them. He's making a claim at divinity in doing this. He's speaking as God, and he's heightening the application of the law, certainly understanding of the application of the law. So he begins by saying, you have heard that it was said. Today, it's do not murder. Next week, it's going to be don't commit adultery. The week after, it is... Um, You've heard that it was said, if anyone divorces his wife, you should give her a certificate of divorce. Don't take oaths. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye. Love your, your, love your neighbor. All of these. And then he, he dials the notch up, and he says, but I say to you. And his, his responses are very challenging. These, um, these six instructions, they show disciples of Christ what it means to have our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees. These six commands, they will cut into to areas of our life um, that for many of us have been untouched, perhaps even out of sight due to a, a number of different factors. For many of us, we'll be familiar with these original commands, but the application that Jesus gives, Jesus' unpacking of what it means to obey them, will be challenging and perhaps even a little painful for a while. So I'm just giving you some forewarning. Today, um, again, we're going to read and we're going to talk um, about how Jesus isn't just concerned about murderous intent. He's, he's concerned about anger in our hearts. And so um, our first point here, as we dive into it, the attitudes Jesus addresses, I want to invite you to read with me verse 21. Jesus says this. You have heard that it was said. There we go. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So we'll just pause there for a sec. You shall not murder. It's the sixth command that we find in Exodus 20, where we find the Ten Commandments. So it's the sixth of the Ten Commandments. Um, and really, all the laws that our society has around don't murder, it comes from this foundation. If you trace them backwards, this, this law that is pretty universal around the world it comes from the Mosaic law. But murder was wrong even before Moses gave this law. Even before there was laws stating murder was wrong. Um, we know this because 2,400 years before Moses wrote the law, you remember the story of Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. God comes down, says he can hear the blood of Abel crying to him from the ground. Cain's, Cain's fearful and he, and he says, don't send me away, other people will get me. 
They're going to get me because I did something wrong. He knew it was written on the core of his being that this was wrong, even before there was a law. Why? Actually, because there is a law that God gave beforehand, which was to be fruitful and multiply. God's commanded us as his followers to actually procreate and have babies, to, to multiply, fill the earth. This is why I have four. We've now multiplied, not just replicated. Um, but when... When Cain killed Abel, it was division rather than multiplication. And he knew it was wrong, and, and therefore he didn't want to be sent out, and he didn't want it to run into anyone else. Murder is wrong. We don't even need a law to tell us this. Murder's wrong. It's written on the core of our being. But Jesus tells us something we don't know. As the one who gave the commands to Moses, as the one who gave the command to be fruitful and multiply, Jesus says something about the law we don't know. It doesn't just pertain to the actions of our hands, it pertains to the attitudes of our hearts. Take a look. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Here we go. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Says we're, this, is, now, this isn't just liable kind of to judgment in the court of Canada. This is liable to judgment in the court of heaven if we're angry at someone. He takes the dial and he turns the serious way up. Now, in a room this size, there's only, there's only a couple of us who've probably murdered anyone. But we've all been angry. I've been angry this week a couple times. The statement Jesus makes here should pique our attention. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Then he dials it up another degree. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Now, when Jesus talks about the council here, the way we should think about this is he's saying, hey, you're not going to go to the courthouse downtown. You're not going to the police station to have to give an account for this. This is like going to the Supreme Court. You're going to be supremely liable, the highest court of the land. The ESV here on the translation I'm reading from, it says, whoever insults his brother. But um, some of your Bibles here, it'll say, whoever says raka. Anyone's Bible say that? A couple, yeah. So that's actually in the original language. That word, raka, uh, was a common insult. It means someone who is empty-headed, someone who lacked intelligence. It's kind of like calling someone a nitwit or a blockhead. I was driving the other week um, from the new Costco gas bar, if you've been there, and then trying to get back out onto Dilworth, which they didn't think through. Just terrible. And the lineup's like all the way back to Springfield. So I'm pulling out of the gas bar, and I see this little gap in front of a car, so I pulled into it. I thought they were letting me in. Turns out they weren't. The guy lays on the horn behind me. And, and so I gave him the peace sign and a wave, and it infuriated him so much, he left the long lineup and pulled up beside me. And, and he pulls up beside me, he's like, I'm like, I don't have manual windows, man. It's automatic. When I rolled it down, I was like, hey, thanks for letting me in. I wasn't letting you in. What's wrong with you? And, and it turns out he was a Christian because this is what he called me. You doorknob? <laughs> Who calls someone a doorknob? So I said, 
hey, you're going to be liable to the council. I didn't, but wouldn't that have been good, right? Um, <laughs> Jesus is telling us there's something serious about insulting people, insulting people's intelligence. Whoever says raka, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. And this means Mr. T is in for a world of trouble one day. But um, we need to get into this word uh, fool a tiny bit to understand it. In Greek, it is the word moros. Moros. Um, the Greek word moros is where we get the English word moron. Uh, if you've ever been called uh, a moron by someone, the way that we use this word moron is more like um, raka, the way the word we just talked about. It's more, it usually refers to like, hey, you don't have any brains upstairs. But in the original language, this had to do with the state of someone's soul. It had to do with their spiritual condition, their salvation. So what he's getting at here is instead of somebody calling, um, calling someone mentally hopeless, it's calling someone spiritually hopeless. Both are serious, and both are seriously dangerous. One commentator said this, he said, the man who tells his brother that he's doomed to hell is in danger of hell himself. This is serious, because if you're like me, you've done all three of these things. I'm guilty of giving into my anger. I've called people lots of colorful names that I learned from Monty Python. And Jesus says there is a serious judgment for all of these things. Now, you might be wondering, hey, didn't Jesus get angry? Didn't Jesus call people fools? Yes, but the difference is, is when Jesus was angry, when he called people a fool in some instances, Jesus' anger and attitudes, um, his, his comments, rather, they, they flowed from his righteous and holy character. Our anger, our choice words, usually flow from unrighteous and unholy character. And I say usually because I honestly can't think back on a single instance where I've called somebody some sort of a name where um, <laughs> my sinful character was not impacting that. This brings us into our second point, which is the problem that Jesus exposes. The problem he gets at here, it's not just actions. It's the heart behind the actions. He talks about this a lot. Matthew, or sorry, Mark 7 says this. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defiles a person. We've said it before, to quote another, um, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. The original audience listening, this is bad news. Jesus says, it's not just our actions, it's our heart's intents that will be judged. And that's bad news. It's bad news for us. It's bad news for them, too. As I was thinking about it this week, I was, I was struck by the irony of the fact that the people um, Jesus is speaking against, who are teachers of the law, condemning murder, 
So the Pharisees who would have taught against murder, they actually became the ones who murdered him. Which is an evidence of what Jesus is showing. Not only can you not control your actions, you can't control your heart. The problem's with the heart, and you can't stop the heart from doing what it wants. That's what he's getting at. We always do what we most want. What the heart wants is where the body follows. What's in the heart inevitably finds its way out. The glass will only spill what it contains. What our hands act out is what our heart wants. Um, an author, Tim Lane, he has a book, How People Change, which I would commend. He says this, he says, Scripture makes it clear that our responses are not forced upon us by the pressures of the situation. What I do comes from inside me. The glass only spills what it contains. The things that happen to me will influence my responses, but they don't determine them. Rather, these responses flow out of the thoughts and motives of my heart. Just like me, your biggest problem is not the driver who cut you off. It's not the annoying coworker. It's not the neighbor. It's not the overbearing parent. It's not the frustrating spouse. Your problem is not anything outside of yourself. Your greatest problem is your heart. The one inside of you, your heart. And what Jesus is pointing out is that the law can't change our hearts. He's giving this law to show us, hey, watch this. You can't do it. That's the problem he's presenting. The law is important. Don't get me wrong. We should have law. The law restrains immoral people. It restrains those people whose compass doesn't point north. It, it provides a framework for our society. Canada is the country it is because we have the Mosaic law governing our land to a large degree. We need law, but laws don't create moral hearts. Laws can restrain people, but they can't change people. And what Jesus is asking for, the law cannot accomplish. He's saying our hearts need to be changed. And this is a problem because our hearts are like Jack Sparrow's compass. We can't make them point anywhere that's not what they want. So the question is, how do we change this? If Jesus is saying our hearts need to change, how do we change our hearts? This is the bad news. This is the problem. We can't. You can't change your heart. When we understand the law is not just about controlling actions, but it applies to the, the actions and the intentions and the desires of our heart as well, it's devastating. We're in more trouble than we realize. This is the problem Jesus presents, but the third, and i got to get to it quick because I don't want to leave us in that dark spot too long, is the solution that Jesus provides. Um, I'll read um, verse 23 to 26 if you want to follow along with me. Um, Jesus says this, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never be let out until you pay every last penny. 
there's lots going on here, um, and, and this is written to a people, um, they're going to be understanding it pre-cross, we're post-cross, so we kind of got to come at this from a few different ways. But to the original audience, Jesus' command would have sounded like uh, an immediate call to action. You know, he's mixing two metaphors here, one of the law courts, one of the sacrificial system, both very familiar to them. And he's saying, hey, if you're bringing an animal sacrifice to the Lord, which is the way you would atone for your sins at the time in the mind of the Jewish person, and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice, don't do it. In the Old Testament, Jesus said this, or, um, yeah, Jesus said this, but it's written, um, God speaking, um, to obey is better than sacrifice. So he says, leave your sacrifice. Go get right with your brother. Or you might get thrown into jail if that brother gets to the judge before you do. And so we need to see in this picture, this analogy Jesus is using, the judge is God. Jesus is warning of a coming judgment, and he's urging them to act. But these three verses um, take on a lot more life for us who, who know the end of the story. Jesus didn't come just to give sayings like this and then peace out like Buddha or Muhammad or Confucius or any other religious leader. He didn't do these things. He didn't just come to like give us some more Torah. Here's some more law. See you. Good luck. He didn't give the law. He fulfilled the law. He showed us our devastating inability to keep the law in order to point us to himself. The law is meant to point us to Jesus. Well, Jesus, he goes straight to the heart while addressing the problem. The best part of the gospel is that Jesus goes straight for the heart in providing a solution. The whole the way the Bible says that we're saved begins with the transformation of our heart and it ends up in the transformation of our actions. Every other religion, it's the other way. It's tra- change your actions and try to change your insides. Jesus says, let me change your insides so we can be transformed outside. We talked about this in our, our James series uh, that we launched with in our pre-launch series. We talked about this in Philippians a bit, but I want to talk about it again now. Um, using a different example, I don't know if the, we've used it yet. Um, theologians call this the, the ordo salutis, um, means the order of salvation. This, I'm going to be nerdy with you for a couple minutes, but hopefully it's helpful. This will come up a few times in this series. This is um, the order in which we are saved, kind of like the progress, the steps that happen. Um, it begins um, w- with God electing us, choosing us by grace, calling to us, I'm calling us through the gospel. And so this, this regeneration is what I want to focus in on. God makes us alive by coming and giving us a new heart. The Holy Spirit takes our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that grieves for our sin. And essentially what he does is he reorients Jack's um, broken compass. And he gives us a heart that actually is inclined towards him. This precedes our conversion. It's not something we get after we call out to Jesus. We would never call out to Jesus if we'd never had a new heart given to us. We get a new heart, so we call out to him. That's the moment of conversion. We repent and believe. Romans says, if we believe in our heart, God, that Jesus is Lord, and confess with our mouth that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. We need a new heart, a heart that believes before we can even call out. 
And then we're justified. God's gavel drops down and says, you're not guilty. Jesus took the punishment for your sins. So but here's the big question we're dealing with this morning. What do we do if we've been given a new heart? We've called out. We believe Jesus' um, um, atoning sacrifice has become proficient, effective for us. So we're now saved. What do we do? If we've called out for saving and we still feel like murdering, annoying people or comedically roasting our neighbors and coworkers, or pulling up beside people and calling them a doorknob. How do we change our actions once Jesus has changed our heart? This, um, this moves on to this, this sanctification line here. It's referred to, um, it's, it really it means we grow in holiness we, this new um, status that we have in heaven because of Jesus begins to flow out in our lives. That's what sanctification means. It's the practice where we become more holy before God. I'm going to give an answer to, to this question now, which is how do we change? We, we don't, this is the big difference, we don't look to the situation around us for our cue. We don't look to the things going on around us for our cues and how we're going to respond or how we should feel. But instead, we look to what Jesus did for us and we act in response to that. So pre-Christ, we're looking, Cole beaked me off. I'm going to push him. Now, my heart's transformed. I look to how Jesus treated me. One way, it looks at the situations around us for our cues to act. The other looks for, to how Jesus has treated us for our cues to act. They cut me off. They took my cookie. They called me a doorknob. I'm going to give him half the peace sign. The other looks to how Jesus has treated him. They sinned against me. But Jesus was gracious to me when I was sinning against him. Romans 5 says, while I was still a sinner, Christ Jesus died for me. So if Christ's kindness and grace towards me wasn't based off of my actions, and if it wasn't based off of, if it was based off of my actions, I'd be doomed. So should I not be gracious towards those around me? It's a different heart. And this moves us into our, first, our fourth point, sorry, which is the response that the gospel requires. If we are Christians, if we've been given a new heart, if we have found forgiveness in Christ, then we need to be a people who extend grace to others. The gospel demands a new set of responses from us. Response to the gospel, um, I tried to think of how we should respond. I came up with six ways. Um, these are going to be quick. In light of the fact that God was gracious to us while we were still sinners, we should have compassion rather than anger towards others because we know the depravity of an unregenerated heart. We know what that's like. Luke 23, 34, Jesus on the cross while being nailed up, falsely accused, lied about, killed by the people who were being sustained by him. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The God of the universe, no one has more reason for offense than that. He says, Father, forgive them. 
we should have compassion rather than anger. We should bless and not curse because while we were cursing Jesus and sinning against him, he blessed us with salvation. We should believe that reconciliation is possible with even the most hardened heart that we encounter because Jesus is in the business of changing hearts. Think of Peter, knife-wielding fisherman. Jesus built his church on him. Think of Paul, a a, a Christian-murdering Jew. Jesus is gracious upon him and gives him a new heart. Countless testimonies. I mean, lots of Bible characters, tons of testimonies in the 2,000 years of, 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 of church history. We've got guys like John Newton, who was a, a, just a barbarous slave trader. Jesus gets a hold of, he becomes a new person. That's who wrote Amazing Grace. If you can't think of any examples, think of your own life. Remind yourself of how, um, unlike, uh, how unlikely of a candidate you are. Jesus came and changed your heart. We need to believe that reconciliation is, rep- is possible with anyone. In response to the gospel, we need to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us because while we were still sinners, Jesus did this for us. Matthew 5, Jesus says, but I say to you, or sorry, verse 44 of 5, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. We already read it a couple weeks ago. He said, blessed are those when others persecute you. So we should love even our enemies. Fifth reason, I think the gospel demands that we respond different. I think in response to the gospel, we need to treat others as we want to be treated because we've been commanded to. Matthew 6, 12, in, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus said that we're to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive others. So we should treat others as we want to be treated. We'll get to that in a bit, but... I think that's actually what Jesus is saying in that prayer is we're to expect judgment in the same way we judge. Which leads us to the last point, which is that we should extend the grace we've received. If we are Christ's, the gavel has dropped. We've been judged as not guilty. Jesus took the consequence of our sin so we wouldn't have to, and so we need to be a people who do the same. Rightly understood Jesus is showing us here in this text that there's no place for anger in the Christian heart. And that's a problem if we're not in Christ because we can't make our heart do that. But in Christ, that's a command. We're to love. We're to not have anger. And by the Holy Spirit's power in us, we can combat that. Read this again with me. uh, Verse 22. I say to you, Everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge. The judge hand you over to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. To be angry and to insult another is a failure to extend the same grace that we require and it could potentially evidence a heart that hasn't tasted the gospel at all. He tells them to leave their gift at the altar 
go seek reconciliation with their brother. And uh, of course, this is an allusion to the Jewish sacrificial system that was in place at the temple at the time, um, where you would bring an animal to atone for your sins. But Jesus told them that if they were coming to God to seek forgiveness for their sins while not forgiving their brother, they should leave their gift at the altar and first go seek reconciliation. The connection to us today uh, is equally as poignant. If we are coming to the altar, expecting the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus, who is God's perfect sacrificial lamb, while failing to forgive or seek reconciliation with those in our lives, we should leave the sacrifice at the altar and first go and be reconciled with our fellow man. If we, if we come expecting forgiveness while not extending it, we shouldn't expect it. In essence, God's saying this. Don't come to me pleading for forgiveness of your sins because of the sacrifice of Christ while failing to forgive those around you. Don't come to me wanting reconciliation through Christ while refusing to pursue reconciliation. Um, Matthew 18, it says this. If you want to hang a right in your Bible with me, Matthew 18, we'll be there for a little bit. Um, it says... Dealing with this in verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, a talent was about 20 years' wages. And, and since he couldn't pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant, though, fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, just like a day's wage, um, and seized him, and it began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you. But he refused. And he went out and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Jesus is saying here, we, we should not expect forgiveness while not extending it. There's a great danger when we taste grace and we go out and we don't show it. As the, the band's going to... Um, lead us into a time of response here in a moment. We're going to take communion. Um, this communion is really for all intents and purposes for the Christian, a celebration of what Christ has done. It's, it's our moment before the altar. It's where we come to the altar not to offer anything, but to take something. The bread and the wine, which is a, a way to remember that Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system for us. And this warning not to come and offer a sacrifice 
Well, while having a grudge with our brother is equally true for us who would come and try to take a sacrifice while holding a grudge against our brother. Everything we have is a result of grace. It's a result of him giving us a new heart. We take communion as a way of remembering this. I'm just a recipient. I'm not bringing you anything. All I'm doing is taking. We take it to remind ourselves this work that you started in us, you're going to bring to completion. It's all you. Every time we come back to this altar, we remind ourselves It's all grace, and as we come here, we can come expecting mercy, but listen to what Matthew says as he closes out 18. Listen to what Jesus says as he closes out chapter 18. To the the servant who failed to show mercy while expecting it, his master delivered him to the jailers. And Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. so also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. It's a heavy word. This is the word of our Lord, though. So we're going to respond, and I want to invite you to come take communion, but before you do, I want to to plead with you to please take a minute and examine your heart and honestly answer a couple questions. One, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Welcome. My question to you is, do you recognize your inability to keep the law? Do you recognize your inability to transform your heart? Then I want to point you to Christ as the solution for this. This is the good news. This is your only hope. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you to to call out to him, and you can call out to him expecting to receive forgiveness. But if you're a Christian and if you've done this, before you come up and you come up and celebrate the forgiveness that you've received, I want to plead with you, think on this. Ask and be honest with yourself, am I extending grace in the same way that I require it? Secondly, to ask the Holy Spirit to search you and see if there's someone that you need to reconcile with before you come and take this communion this morning. Some of you, you will need to hold off. But if you do, remember, Jesus has fulfilled the totality of the law for you. Your righteousness is not based off of this. He presents a horrific problem, but he is our glorious solution. Um, The band is going to lead us in a new song, and it's got some really powerful words in it. And so as we reflect, I want to encourage you, most of you won't know this song, just take some time to listen, to pray, and to search your heart. If you want someone to pray with, I'm going to be at the back, Colin's in the back. You can find your community group leader or someone you know and trust. Um, I want to close us in prayer. Jesus... um, We're very aware that um, we're in a predicament that we can't solve on our own. We can't change our hearts, and your law is too high and holy, and we're incapable of fulfilling it. So our singular hope, Jesus, is you. You are our only hope. I thank you that your word says as we call out to you, we can expect to, 
to receive grace, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us. As we take communion now, reflect on what it cost, though, to accomplish this impossible feat in us, to gift us this new heart. And we don't want to take that lightly. We don't want to trample on this great sacrifice that you made on our behalf. So, Holy Spirit, would you come and search us? And if there's in us an unforgiving heart, a heart that's failing to extend grace, that's holding anger like a weapon over others when you didn't do that to us, would you... Would you awaken our conscience that we might have been numbing? Don't let us stay there. Help us to be a people who live the whole of our lives in light of the grace that you've extended to us. Help us to truly be citizens of the kingdom of heaven that love like you love, that give grace like you've given grace. We pray in the name of Christ, amen.